along in your bulletin, you'll see we were very excited to hear from one of our ruling elders, Rick Behrens, who is, I think, at the urgent care right now. Bronchitis. So he, uh, I think he knew sort of early in the week that he might have some kind of strep throat-like symptoms. Um, we are still going to hear from Rick Behrens because he wrote this sermon. I'm just going to deliver it. So, done this before. In the past few weeks, we have begun to study the most familiar stories ever told. I doubt there's anyone here, even if you do not recognize the Lord Jesus as your Savior, who does not know how this story ends. There are no surprises in the grand scheme of things. No need for a spoiler alert. Our Lord, the King of Kings, dies for us and then conquers death through his resurrection. For those of us who have been smothered in God's grace, the grace that only comes from what Jesus did, this story never gets old. We know how it ends, and yet we love to hear it over and over. It uh, deepens our appreciation and excites our worship. Uh, that said, the verses we're about to read are very heavy. They deserve our reverence. If we didn't already know the end of the story, we might feel a dreadful sense of defeat, hopelessness, as we watched our Lord betrayed, condemned, and beaten in the span of only a few hours. So let's carefully, prayerfully, and reverently read the gospel from Matthew chapter 26, verses 57 through 68. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far, far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him 
And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Heavenly and gracious Father, these are difficult words for us to read. It's hard for us to comprehend how you would let your own son endure this judgment, shame and abuse that's usually reserved for the worst criminals. Help us this morning to have a renewed sense of the suffering involved in our ransom and the immense love you have on each of us despite our many transgressions. Lord, may our response to this message be one of deep adoration and worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Why is it that we love a good trial? There's something of a spectacle for us, probably always have been. According to uscourts.gov, the U.S. district courts disposed of 97,445 criminal defendants in the year 2012. Of those, 88,878 were convicted. It might surprise you to know that 86,000, remember out of 97,000, pleaded guilty to their crimes. Only just under 2,000 were actually tried in front of a jury. Perhaps even more astonishing is the amount of airtime that is given to the most interesting jury trials. In fact, it's big business for courtroom shows and news networks. You, remember, you may remember last year the trial of Jody Arias, the waitress who was accused and convicted of murdering Travis Alexander in June of 2008. Arias was Alexander's ex-girlfriend, was charged with first-degree murder for his death. And at trial, she testified that she killed Alexander in self-defense, but she was convicted of first-degree murder. And the murder in the trial received widespread media attention. The Toronto Star said this about the trial, with its mix of jealousy, religion, murder, and sex, the Jody Arias trial shows what happens when the justice system becomes entertainment. During the trial, uh, HLN, Headline News, uh, channel experienced double-digit increases in viewership in every hour of its programming during the month of March compared to the same time the year before. Uh, some afternoon hours reached 300% growth in viewership. You don't have to spend much time on HLN to see that they are doing their best to exploit our curiosity and interest in courtroom drama. We love a good courtroom drama. And perhaps we like to see justice done, but it seems that the more sensational the drama, the more ridiculous, the better. Jesus' hasty trial before the Sanhedrin bears some resemblance to this. The Gospels depict two trials for Jesus. Uh, this first one is the ecclesiastical trial. It's the church trial. And the second is the civil trial, which we'll cover in a couple weeks. 
But in this passage, we get a glimpse into the proceedings of a Jewish trial, the, the council of the Sanhedrin with the high priest, Caiaphas, presiding. Actually, the trial began earlier that night when the mob that arrested Jesus first took him to the house of Annas. Both Annas and Caiaphas held the position of high priest. John says in his gospel that Caiaphas was high priest that year, but Annas was not only high priest, he was also Caiaphas's father-in-law. And so there was a considerable deference to Annas. And that's why Jesus was first sent to him in something of an arraignment. Uh, John tells us that Annas had a few questions of his own and afterwards sent him to Caiaphas, who was, according to historical accounts, in an adjoining home sharing a courtyard. One of the most remarkable things of this trial was how well understood it was that this trial was a total farce. It was hastily thrown together to take advantage of the betrayal of Judas and to avoid the potential of a riot. So Jesus was taken late at night in the cover of darkness. Upheaval was a very real threat. Recall that only a few days earlier, the chief priests narrowly avoided a riot when Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey, and a multitude of Jesus' followers declared, Hosanna. And recall much earlier, uh, when Jesus fed the 5,000, John describes the gravity of the situation. He says, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him, meaning Jesus, the crowd take Jesus by force, to make him king. But Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. A throng of thousands of Jesus' followers would be a formidable threat to the Jewish leadership and even to the Romans who would hold the leadership responsible for a riot. Just a few days prior to Jesus' arrest, his fame and popularity are at an all-time high having raised Lazarus from the dead, having entered Jerusalem as a king, and having kicked out the money changers from the temple. Mark, the Gospel of Mark, depicts the anger of the Sanhedrin and their fear of the people this way, Mark 14, 1-2. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Apparently the law mattered very little to these men. Due process? No. Public accountability? Forget it. Accountability to God? Certainly not if it gets in the way of imposing their own will and taking care of a troublemaker who had repeatedly discredited and humiliated them in public. So let's look at this trial through three major themes. Uh, the themes don't divide neatly in Scripture, but you'll have to follow along as we kind of pull the themes out from the whole passage. The first thing, theme that we see is truth versus lies. So let's take a closer look at some of the verses between 59 and 65. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none 
though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. So what do you do when you are running this court, this kangaroo court? You look for witnesses that lend credence to your accusations. In pretending to respect the law, Caiaphas sought the testimony of two or more witnesses in agreement with each other. Uh, this is in compliance with the Old Testament, with Deuteronomy 17.6, which says, On the evidence of two witnesses, or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. You see, Caiaphas knew that he had to find two witnesses in agreement. Without them, he could not take his case to the Roman civil court and ask for the death penalty. But God confounded his efforts. Caiaphas could not get two people to agree on what Jesus had done. Now, these false witnesses further highlighted the ridiculousness of the trial, frustrating Caiaphas and the other chief priests. After all, this should have been easy. Jesus' ministry was public. He said nothing in secret. He was not running an underground rebellion or a secret society. The Apostle John quotes Jesus' response to these accusations. John 18, 20. I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. How could it be that these witnesses were not paying attention to his words? Three years of open public ministry, countless hours of listening to the rabbi, numerous observations, yet they could not fabricate a consistent story. What, why is that? What about his violation of the Sabbath or his disregard for the laws of cleanliness? Well, that would not have been enough for an execution. Caiaphas needed evidence for a blasphemy charge, convincing enough that the Romans would be willing to execute a man on religious grounds. He finally finds two witnesses that agree that Jesus suggested he would destroy the temple. The thing was, Caiaphas was not interested in the truth. A good lie told by two people was good enough for him. So when he's asked to respond to this insidious claim, twisting Jesus' own words to suit their purposes, the Son of God remains silent. But once Caiaphas put him under oath, verse 63, asked him point blank if he was the Christ, the Son of God, Jesus was ready to respond to the lies. Instead of acknowledging, really, the lies against him, he slammed the Sanhedrin with the truest of truths. You have said so, meaning it is just as you said. 
And whatever the expression, Jesus was clear. And instead of leaving it there, uh, Jesus chose to leave no daylight between the question and his answer. And so in verse 64, he says, But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. They tried to convict him with lies, but Jesus gives them the truth. Simply answering Caiaphas' question in the affirmative could have left doubt about Jesus' deity. But now there's no question that Jesus claimed to be God incarnate and eternal and that he would return to his lofty position on the throne. It's interesting that Caiaphas tore his clothes. To Caiaphas, those words signify Jesus' blasphemy. But to every single person who has been called to repentance and grace, this signified that Caiaphas had received and understood the testimony. And for the rest of history, there's no doubt that Jesus claimed to be God. When faced with the truth, capital T, Jesus declares that he is the truth. The high priest of God rejects him. Because of Christ's proclamation, we have no choice but to accept him or reject him. There's no middle ground. Now the second theme to explore looks at sort of the same passage, same part of the scripture. It's the theme of authority versus submission. Authority versus submission. Our passage opens by telling us that the scribes and elders, or chief priests, had already gathered at the home of Caiaphas. These are the Jewish elite who make up the Sanhedrin. Uh, there was very little time for word to spread, and yet all the chief priests had already assembled. Mindful of the upcoming feast, they knew that they needed to swiftly administer justice, accuse and convict in a Jewish high court, and then convict in a Roman court sentence him and then execute Jesus before the feast, before the day of atonement, the day, incidentally, maybe ironically, that God had set aside to forgive the sins of the people. Now, a little background on the Sanhedrin. You're not going to find it in the Old Testament necessarily. It's, it's the highest authority in all of Judea, but the Sanhedrin appears to have been established after the exile, likely during the Greek period that followed Persian rule, so sort of in between the Testaments. And at that time, the Jews established a council of elders, which was accepted as the legal representative of Judaism. Uh, during the time period of our passage now, the Gospels, during Roman rule, it was respected as the supreme court of justice for Jewish violations of the law. Uh, the Romans used the Sanhedrin to keep the Jewish people in line and held them responsible for keeping the peace. There were a few subordinate Sanhedrins in Judea, 
that were directed by elders in the synagogues at the local level. But the final and highest authority, the Supreme Court, if you will, lay with the Jerusalem Sanhedrin. So what does all this mean to Jesus? Well, for one, we just learned that Jesus, in speaking the truth under oath, declared himself an even greater authority than the high priest. I mean, Caiaphas will never sit at the right hand of power of God. Caiaphas will not return on the clouds. Jesus essentially just threw down the gauntlet on the highest authority in all Judea by saying that he has dominion over the Jews, over the Sanhedrin, over the high priest, over the Romans, over Caesar, and the entire Roman Empire, over all of heaven and earth. Recall last week in our passage, Jesus rebuked his disciples when they tried to defend him by force, at least Peter. Jesus said, do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? There were angel warriors standing by to corroborate Christ's claims of authority and reduce all in attendance to nothing. That's not what happened. Instead, we see Jesus submit to the authorities appointed over him. We see him willingly accept their accusations. No objection to their lies, no resistance to their beatings. In Philippians, Paul uses this example, the submission of Christ for how we should treat one another, how we should model our lives Philippians 2, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." You remember when you joined the church or when others have come forward and answered their membership vows. Our last membership vow asks, do you submit to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace? It's so hard for each of us to submit, but our Lord submitted He has called us to submit in our marriages and to submit to one another. It's a mark of our faith in Jesus and our love for one another. God calls us to submission and he gave us the perfect example. But this does not diminish the fact that Jesus' submission would only be temporary. Go back to Paul in Philippians. He finishes 
that section in chapter 2, he says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This brings us to our final theme in verses 65 through 68. Let me read those again. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Our final theme is defeat versus victory. Defeat versus victory. I'm sure you've seen enough courtroom dramas to identify with the scene. This is that moment when the accused learns that all hope is lost and that they will go away for a very long time or be sentenced to death. And to make matters worse, over the cries of the friends and family of the accused, you can hear the cheers of the accusers. When justice is administered properly, this is a happy day. But when it's not, it is egregious and sad. It's a kick in the gut. And to make matters worse, the Sanhedrin move quickly from a very dignified group of elite religious leaders to abusive, vile thugs. They spit in his face. They struck him. They slapped him. And as Jesus took each blow, continuing to submit, his face swelled, blood ran from his mouth and nose. His eyes swelled shut. Even if someone came straight at him, he couldn't see who, that, who hit him. But he knew. He knew each name. He knew where and when they were born. He knew the number of their days. He knew the number of their sins. Not just the number, but he could name every single sin they committed, whether in public or in private. And we have to wonder if he sees, he know, we know that he sees every one of our sins. He knows our name. It was our sins that brought him to this very moment. Our sins were the reason that he took each blow. Who is it that struck you, Lord? I did. Now who feels defeated? Isn't that what our sin do, does to us? It makes us feel defeated. But Jesus was not defeated that day. He was right where he wanted to be. And he knew where he would end up. And he would indeed be seated at God's right hand as he had from the beginning of time. 
And he would come on the clouds in all his glory to defeat the enemy, to save the lost, and to claim his kingdom. Listen to the way Daniel, the book of Daniel, describes him coming in glory. In beautiful detail. He says, And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Christ's victory over death is wonderful news for those of us who have struck him, which is all of us. We are rescued from that sense of shame and defeat. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Jesus never sinned. He stood falsely accused. The accusation of blasphemy was not for him. It was for us. The words that our Lord spoke were the truest words ever uttered on earth. He was the Christ, the Messiah. He was the Son of the living God. And He takes our blasphemous sins and offers us His sinlessness. I'm sure that many of you have had days when you felt like you were on trial. And the guilt of your sin left you feeling hopeless and defeated. Perhaps the most beautiful thing about these verses in Matthew is that we can see we are not alone. Jesus didn't simply die for your sins. He felt the weight of your guilt. If you are feeling crushed by your sin, I want you to know that you are not alone. You have a Savior who loved you enough to come to earth and take that weight on Himself. All He asks is that you believe the truth He declared that day. Victory is His and defeat is no more. So, will you hear and accept that truth? Will you submit to Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior? And will you live a life of victory in the shadow of the cross? Take a moment to answer those questions to yourself and to pray to the Lord to accept His grace and His truth. And then I'll close this in prayer.
Lord God, every one of us, every human being who's ever lived, knows that they do wrong, that they sin, that they are selfish. Some of us suppress it, explain it away, excuse ourselves, and justify ourselves before our eyes. But we're deceived when we do that. Our sin should bring us to our knees and bring us guilt. And we realize that in your eyes, We are criminals. We're blasphemers. We are guilty of every sin, of violating the whole law, of everything that you call us to in our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. If we were to be put on trial, we would be guilty for so many things. And yet, there is one who stands in our place and offers to take our punishment for us. So that our sin does not count against us. God, we rejoice. And as we read through Matthew and see the trial of Jesus we see that it is a brutal trial full of lies, anger. But it is a trial that had to take place because Jesus had to be declared a criminal for us that would lead to the sentence of death so that he would die in our place for those who call on His name, who follow Him, those that He calls according to His purpose. God, thank You that we don't have to die for our own sins and pay the penalty and be punished for them because Jesus was punished in our place. God, convince us of that truth. May we cling to it all of our life. It's seen in a different light when we embrace that. That is the gospel. That is the good news, the hope. And to know that even though Jesus was punished for every sin of every believer, that he still defeated death. And he will come again in glory, in power. Because he is God. He is part of the Godhead. Three in one. This was your plan from the beginning, Lord. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit bringing salvation to your people. And so we read it, we preach it, we pray it, we sing it every week. 
settle it in our hearts, Lord. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. This is not the response of reading. This is the benediction. Hear the words from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Amen. We hope to see you at 5.30.